So it is September 8th, 2021, in Hawaii over the internet. Reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 28. Paranjana becomes a woman in his next life, Text 17. Ahammameti Svikritya. Ahammameti Svikritya. Viheshu Kumatir Grihi. Dadyo Pramadayadino. Viprayoga Upastite. Please chant. Aham. I. Mama. Mine. Iti. Thus. Svikritya. Accepting. Kriheshu. In the home. Kumatihi. Whose mind is full of obnoxious thoughts. Grihi. The householder. Dadyao. Turns his attention to. Pramadaya with his wife, that literally means the reservoir of madness, <laughs> Dina, very poor, Viprayoge, when separation, Upastite, occurred. Srila Prabhupada's translation, King Puranjana was overly attached to his family and conceptions of I and mine. Because he was overly attached to his wife, he was already quite poverty-stricken, at the time of separation, he became very sorry. Srila Prabhupada's purport. It is clear in this verse that at the time of death, thoughts of material enjoyment do not go away. This indicates that the living entity, the soul, is carried by the subtle body, mind, intelligence, and ego. Due to false ego, the living entity still wants to enjoy the material world, and for want of material enjoyment, he becomes sorry or sad. He still makes intellectual plans to further his existence, and therefore, although he gives up the gross body, he is carried by the subtle body to another gross body. The transmigration of the subtle gross body is never visible to material eyes. Therefore, when one gives up the gross body, we think that he's finished. Plans for material enjoyment are made by the subtle body, and the gross body is the instrument for enjoying these plans. Thus, the gross body can be compared to the wife, for the wife is the agent for all kinds of sense gratification. Because of long association with the gross body, the living entity becomes very sad to be separated from it. The mental activity of the living entity obliges him to accept another gross body and continue his material existence. The Sanskrit word stri means expansion. Through the wife, one expands his various objects of attraction, sons, daughters, grandsons, and so on. Attachment to family members becomes very prominent at the time of death. One often sees that just before leaving his body, a man may call for his beloved son to give him charge of his wife and other paraphernalia. He may say, My dear boy, I am being forced to leave. Please take charge of the family affairs. He speaks in this way, not even knowing his destination. Dadyo Pramadhyadino Viprayoga Upastite. King Puranjana was overly attached to his family and conceptions of I and mine. Because he was overly attached to his wife, he was already quite poverty stricken. At the time of separation, he became very sorry. I was just thinking, reading through this purport, how Krishna says what's night for the devotee is day for the ordinary materialist and what's night for the ordinary materialist is day for the devotee that generally among materialists at least at the present time maybe not thousands of years ago but at least at the present time the conception of people at the time of death being full of attachment for their family and friends and this world is glorified you know if, if there's, there's always some feel-good story in the news about some elderly couple that's been married, you know, they've been married 75 years, they married, got married when they were 18, and they've been married for 75 years, and now they are in their 90s, and they die within five minutes of each other, you know, holding hands and, and full of love for each other. I mean, it, it's just such a typical story, and everybody goes, aww, 
right? <laughs> and, and probably some of the women cry. The, that, that's the, the idea. You know, when you die, there you're surrounded by your, your family, and you're holding the hands of your family, and, you know, or stories about, like, estranged family members, you know, some... Some guy hasn't seen his daughter for 20 years. They had a big fight. And, and there at his deathbed, his, his estranged daughter holding his hand. I love you, Daddy. I love you, too. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And the person dies, and everybody goes, Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So this, this concept is there. Or even the dog, you know. The person's dying, and the dog is there. And I mean, one of the things people really were said about with the COVID epidemic is because people were quarantined that how many people were dying in hospitals without their family and friends around them. And again, there's this concept that and family attachment at the time of death. I mean, Srila Prabhupada talks here about that it's increased at the time of death, which is, is really interesting. He says at the time of death it's increased this desire for material enjoyment, right? And that it's, it doesn't go away. It actually increases. And it's, it's really interesting, Prabhupada says, become a, because of long association with the material body, with the gross body, the living entity becomes very sad to be separated from it. And in this, in this case, the wife is used not only to mean actually the wife, but it also is a metaphor for the body. That is what is enabling, is the instrument of fulfilling one's desires. So even though at, at death, the body is often, you know, in, in an ideal life, I suppose, the body has become old and the body has already been falling apart for some time in old age. Uh, you know, one can't, one doesn't have the same bone mass, one doesn't have the same muscle mass, one may have, you know, one has to wear eyeglasses, one may have to wear hearing aids, one may have to have artificial teeth, you know, the skin is sagging, and then you don't have the same energy. But still the person is very attached to the gross body. And Prabhupada says because of long association with it. Think about, you know, something you've had for a long time and you don't want to get rid of it even though it's old and it's falling apart. So there's, so, you know, it says some sentimental value, what will I do without my body? And this, this mood is really glorified out in the world. You know, the person who doesn't want to die, <laughs> who wants to stay in the body, who wants to stay with family. And, and this kind of thing of saying to your family members, you know, my dear son, please take care of, your, of my wife. You know, please take care of your mother. Take care of the business. And, and again, this is very much glorified. So the Bhagavatam is opposite. It's saying this is horrible. It, it's horrible. You know, sometimes there are situations in a prison where a person has been in prison for so long. You know, suppose somebody's arrested when they're 20, 25, and then they have a 25, 30-year sentence. By the time they get out of prison, they're in their 50s. And they've been so accustomed to living prison life. Uh, this is actually a phenomenon, that when they're released and they're into the world, they don't know what to do. There are people who commit crimes again when they're released so they can go back to prison because they've become accustomed to that. So the free soul, Robin says in the first canto, the need of the soul is freedom. The free soul can have this urge to go back. Right? Or like they say, you let a bird out of a cage. Sometimes it, it goes back. It goes back again. So there's this opportunity at death, to become free of the body, to become free of the material association, to not have to take birth again, and yet a person is drawn back. They're drawn back. I mean, we see this phenomena uh, whenever we are engaged with mulling over the past. Yes? You know, it's, it's kind of interesting especially if you see it in somebody else. You know, let, let's just take some theoretical person, some Krishna Das or Krishna Dasi, and, you know, things have gone on in their past that they wish had gone differently. 
they wish they had married that person when they had the chance, or they wish they had gone to India when they had the chance, or they wish they had not married that person when they had the chance, or that they didn't go to California, or something. They have something that they wish had turned out differently. They wish they had acted differently. They had made different choices. And they become absorbed in this thing of the past. Right? Perhaps we've all done that at some point, but I'm sure we've known people who've done that. That, I mean, I have some friends who are, you know, their, their consciousness is always absorbed in something that happened a long time ago. And they have a very difficult time of being here. <laughs> and when you see that in someone else... It's so obvious, and you say to them, well, you know, why are you constantly reliving something that happened five years ago? You know, you, you got stuck there. <laughs> you got stuck there, and your consciousness is keep being drawn back there. Why don't you exist in the what you have now? As Bhaktivinoda says, forget the past that sleeps. Uh, bear with times that are with thee. Uh, but the, the time of death is really a time when people tend to do that when they just they look back into their past life and they try to grab something and try to relive it and try to fix it and think of, well, I would do this better next time and I would do that better next time. And that propels one to uh, the next body. It propels one to try to do it again. Yes, and it's very common that especially at the time of death, when there's no more future in that body, that one goes into the past and one just uh, gets very, very absorbed. As Prabhupada said, uh, for want of material enjoyment, he becomes sorry or sad. Uh, that one is full of, of regret and full of what-ifs and full of plans. And our, with our gross eyes, we don't see that. We just see that the person is, is animating the body and then the body is, is inanimate. But actually what's happening is that mentality is carrying a person forward. So here it's also interesting that uh, we have this very common ahamamati, I and mine, I and mine. So this false I, that one is absorbed in the false I of I am the body, and then the false mine, my family, my house, my job, my friends, my reputation, my this, my that. You know, that. Why didn't this work out? And why didn't that work out? And why do I have to leave? And, and, and Bob was talking about this false responsibility. You know, thinking... I mean, it's actually kind of funny if we think about what the world really is. It, it's really just like a drama. You know, I'm sure we've all been in a drama at some point and you put on a costume... You put on makeup. I remember for the Ramayana, Lokamangala would spend like a couple hours putting on his Ravana makeup, right? So we put on this, this makeup and uh, we, we take on the role of another character and in that role we have so many responsibilities. In that role we have a spouse. In that role we have children. We have siblings. We have duties to do. But it's just, it's just a drama. It's, it's not our real life. You know, it, when you take the costume off at the end of the play, one shouldn't be lamenting. Oh, what about my my drama wife? <laughs> what about my drama children? You know, what, actors. I mean, sometimes it happens, isn't it? That, you know, people are in a, a drama together. They're acting in a movie. They're acting in a play. And they actually think they fall in love with their husband or their lover in the drama. You, know, you have people in the drama, they're, they're married to other people in their real life. And when they're in the drama, they forget. They so much get into the character that they, they ended up, end up having an actual love affair uh, with their drama lover. Right? And they, they leave their real family and they leave their real home. So we, we do this. We forget about our real beloved, the Lord. We forget about our eternal family members our, our real life becomes lost to us. And it's, it's so foolish that we're lamenting when it's time to go, when the drama's over, when it's time to move on, and we're lamenting 
about, wait a minute, wait a minute, what about this responsibility? What about that responsibility? What about this person? What about that person? So, without any thoughts of the real self, and, and this is something Srila Prabhupada says a number of places, that, you know, we're, we're so worried, oh, think how are things going to go on, and we don't know where we're going. I mean, it's, it, it's almost absurd. It reminds me of a, a really funny story Indra Jumnaswami tells about himself, where, um, you know, those of us who've done constant traveling as a, as a preacher... You know, sometimes it just becomes a blur of, of where you're going, where you've been. So he said at one point, instead of a ticket, that he had a travel credit, like a travel voucher. Uh, this was a long time ago, and he and Sri Prahlad were at the airport. Instead of bringing the ticket, they bring the travel voucher. So he goes up to the airline counter, and he says, here's my travel voucher, here's my credit. I mean, now we would do this all online. But he says, you know, here's my travel voucher, I want to buy a ticket. And the agent says, where do you want to buy a ticket to? And Indra Swami said that he and Sri Prahlad looked at each other and said, where are we going? I don't remember where we're going. So, I mean, that's humorous in the context of someone who's traveling to preach all, all over the world all the time. But in the time of death, the main thing is, where am I going? Right? Uh, just like in a couple months I'm going to travel to Hawaii, so, of course, I want to make sure that the services I do here are taken care of. That's, that's responsible, and that's, that's my duty to make sure that, you know, when I'm traveling, that the things I, I, that the devotees depend on me for are covered as far as I can do that. But my main thing that I should be worried about is where am I going? You know, do I have my ticket? Do I have my place to stay? Uh, that's primary, Right? It's not just how is everything going to be taken care of in my absence, but what about where I'm going? You know, a person has no idea who am I, where am I going, what is my destination, and all they're thinking about is how will things go on without me? You know, as if the world revolves around us. I mean, even if any of us were to just suddenly drop dead without, any, without having any time to make any provision for things to go on in our absence, somehow things would go on in our absence. You know, the world keeps turning and it keeps going on. And even if some things, I mean, everything eventually is destroyed. So even if some things get destroyed because we're not there to take care of them, uh, they would be destroyed anyway, sooner or later. So that's the real fact. The real fact is, you know, I'm not, none of us are indispensable. None of us are that important in the world. And to be thinking like that without caring about the real self is, it's pretty awful. It's pretty horrible. Again, you know, just thinking how the materialist sees this, the materialist sees this is wonderful. You know, that, oh, you're just caring about your responsibilities and your loved ones and how sweet. And In fact, the materialistic people see such a death as, as a perfect death. Right? You've had time, time to put everything in order and to take care of everything. And uh, you're there surrounded by your loved ones and thinking about them. And how beautiful. And the spiritualist looks and sees this is an awful death. You haven't used the human life properly. The human life is not meant just for glorified animal life. You know, the soul (laughs) takes a human body and then goes, Oh, wow, I have so much nicer facility for eating, sleeping, mating, and defending than I had in my bird body and than I had in in my snail body and my fish body. Wow, look at this. I've really got it made. You know, but that's... That's not what it's about. You know, it's about this is a chance to get free. This is a chance to get out. So the concept of that is is not well understood in the world, even by very religious people. I mean, even if you look at the religious people in various religions, this concept is not really there. Even people who are talking about going to heaven Their idea of going to heaven is, I'm going to go with my family members. I'm basically going to have, uh, you know, an ideal 
I, I'm just going to have the same situation I had here, but now it's going to be perfect. I'm still going to have a body pretty much like this body, but it's going to be more beautiful, and it's not going to have sickness and pain, and I'm just going to have all my family members, and we're all going to get along, and I won't be irritated by them, and they won't be irritated by me. And I remember when I was... Um, when I first moved into a Hare Krishna temple and I was distributing Srila Prabhupada's books and magazines, Back to Godhead magazines at Chicago Airport and O'Hare Airport. And I, you know, I was really newly a member of the Hare Krishna movement. I mean, wow. What do they say? A newbie. I was really a newbie. <laughs> and uh, I remember going up to these people and, said, and they said, well, you know, we, we already have religion. We already have Jesus. And we're going to heaven, we don't need your books. And I said, oh, well, that's really nice. What are you going to do in heaven? And they said, well, we'll do the same thing we're doing now. They were kind of proud about that. And I said, really? You know, are you, are you going to watch television? And then they were just silent. <laughs> but that's their idea. Their idea is that it's just going to be a material world, but more perfect. And so we can see this is the idea of the demigods. Right, we're just. Of course, the demigods' world is far from perfect, but this concept that we're just going to have kind of a perfect world, and you have the Jehovah's Witnesses who say it's going to happen on this planet, and then you have others who say it's going to happen in some other realm. <laughs> but this concept that I really have nothing to do with the world is not well known or well understood. I mean, I would say that among those who follow the Vedas, uh, there's some understanding of this idea of moksha. And, of course, among the Buddhists also, there's some understanding of moksha. But in general, in the world, uh, the idea is I'm going to keep my entanglement, but by the grace of God. So what should one be doing? And, of course, it can't just be a time of death thing. This point is really emphasized by Srila Prabhupada in the 8th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, in the chapter where Krishna says, yam yam bhapis from bhavam, that whatever we think of at the time of death is what we get. And Srila Prabhupada particularly makes the point that one cannot just magically think of Krishna at the time of death without that having been the focus throughout life. That it's not just throughout life I'm going to live like a materialist and then at death magically I'm going to think of Krishna. I was talking to a devotee the other day who said, yeah, I think a lot of devotees are really hoping for Kripa City. <laughs> they're, they're just kind of hoping that you know, there's going to be some magical creeper that's going to happen. Of course, even Sadhana Siddha involves some, some creeper. Uh, but it really is a question that we get what we want. I mean, the so-called spiritualist New Age people, uh, they sort of have it right. Yeah, they don't have it exactly right, but they sort of have it right that... Uh, that Krishna is fulfilling all of our desires. And my desires is what I meditate on. I meditate on my desires and my desires are what I meditate on. Where is my consciousness? What is it resting in? And particularly this ahammameti, I and mine. What do I consider to be I and what do I consider to be mine? It is entirely natural that our main consciousness is going to be on whatever I consider to be me and whatever I consider to belong to me. Of course. So the problem is changing our identity. Now the impersonalists and the voidists they say that the solution is to stop having any ahamamati at all, to stop having any concept of I, that I does not exist. Now, there is a form of reality, the Brahmajyoti, where there is no sense of I, there is no sense of ahamamati at all. There is a sense of kind of a, a, a sort of bliss and a sort of oneness and a sort of detachment. And as I've mentioned before, that I've read accounts of contemporaries, contemporary people, who have had, looks like, Brahman realization, what they describe certainly fits the scriptural description of Brahman realization, where there was no I and there was no mine. No I and no mine. Everything was just one. 
They had a sense of existence, but they didn't have a sense that they existed. They just had a sense of beingness. <laughs> and uh, in all of those cases that I've read about, the person made a conscious choice to come to return to some level of mundane consciousness, generally in Satvagun, in order to experience relationships, in order to experience some sense of I-ness and mindness. So although there is a way to live without any sense of I and mine, that is not satisfying. So if we just say, well, this samsara, this taking birth again and again and again because I'm absorbed in this world, all right, that's not a good deal. Let me become not absorbed in the world. Let me become absorbed in the nothing. But we don't like that either. I mean, the people who have that experience, when they first have it, they think, wow, this is incredible. This is amazing. This is beyond fear. You know, it's be- there's no... I was just reading one of these accounts this, the other day to one devotee, you know, no thoughts, no emotions, no sense of self. And they're like, wow, wow. And then they're like, I, I want to go back. I have things to do. I have people I want to relate to. The, the Bhagavatam says, Avasuddha Buddha, that there's still not a purification of intelligence. So our personal philosophy is actually very radical. There, there aren't very, very many teachers of spirituality or religion that teach spiritual personalism. It is actually very radical. And it's without any doubt, to me anyway, is one of the primary things that we Vaishnavas, and especially perhaps we Gaudiya Vaishnavas, can contribute to the world. That the same tendency to be absorbed in our own illusory stories of our friends and family and activities and so forth, in our own illusory stories of I and mine, and to be just swallowed up in them, and to be buffeted by the waves of emotions connected with them, can be used to bring us great happiness and freedom that we desire. That we basically can take the same system and principles and way that we become attached to this world and we can become attached to our real self. That there is a real I and there is a real mine. There is a real I and there is a real mine. And the reason we have this ahammeti for the false things of this world is because we do have something in reality. It's not just a question of getting rid of them. In fact, Rupa Goswami explains that just detachment is not a, a good prerequisite for taking up bhakti. He said one shouldn't be too attached or too detached. So our real I should be the I that exists always. The I that exists just in this life cannot be my real I. How can it be my real self? Even in this, even within the scope of this life, this false self has changed so many times. The way that I thought, the way that I behaved, the kind of desires that I had when I was a child are just so radically different. You know, I was thinking when I, when I was a little girl, like three years old, I wanted a life-size doll. I ended up getting it and I never even played with it. <laughs> but I wanted it because I'd seen it on a television commercial. I don't have any desire for such a thing anymore. Right? I mean, I remember when I, I got a present of like these little toys and I, I was so excited. And, but I have no desire for that anymore. At all. It, it has no appeal. So who is the I? You know, what I like to do, I like to go to a playground and climb on the monkey bars and slide down the slides. And Again, that has no appeal. If I, if I go to a children's playground, I, I don't want to climb on the monkey bars or slide down the slides. It, it doesn't mean anything to me. 
So who is the me? I, and in this life, that me is changing. What I take pleasure in, how I identify myself. So the real me must not be that. The real me must be something that doesn't change. The real me must be something spiritual. And oh, how we can forget this. You know, even in our practice of Krishna consciousness, we can get caught up in the things of this world so easily. And we can get caught up in the things of this world in the name of Krishna consciousness. I mean, one of the things to remember is King Prachinibharishat, to whom Narada Muni is speaking this allegory, is a very pious Vedic king. He's not just, you know, some beer-drinking, football-watching guy. <laughs> he's, he's very sophisticated, and he's engaged in Vedic rituals. So he's thinking that his attachments and his activities are all spiritual, or at least quasi-spiritual. He's not thinking that they're materialistic, which is one of the reasons that Nardamuni is giving this very heavy allegory. And in a similar way, we may be absorbed in the things of this world ostensibly thinking that they're spirituality, but still being overcome, what does Prabhupada say, sorrow. How does he say it? Sorrow, sorry and sad. Now we may be uh, so often sorry and sad, or angry, or guilty, or something, that we're just full of all these churning emotions, because where we're putting our attention is not to the real self. So the real self has nothing to do with this world, except in terms of service to Krishna, and the real mind is Krishna. It's so nice how Rupa Goswami explains that regardless of one's particular rasa in relationship with Krishna, all the devotees who realize their relationship with Krishna have the sense of mamata. Krishna is mine. I am Krishna's and Krishna is mine. Today, Krishna, I am yours and you are mine. Prabhupada says that in order to become free of possessiveness, this mine, this is my computer, this is my car, this is my son, this is my father, we have to think, I, I own Krishna. <laughs> I possess Krishna. Now, not that I possess Krishna like I possess an object to exploit, or even like I have a relationship uh, of material, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. Uh, but that Krishna is my master, Krishna is my friend, Krishna is my child, Krishna is my beloved, Krishna is my husband. He is mine. I mean, something like we say in this world, that's my husband, or my wife, or, you know, my friend. That Krishna is mine. Janaka Janani Daita Tanai, Prabhu Guru Patitu Sarva Moi. And when I think I am a soul and Krishna is mine, then there's no material lamentation. There's a kind of spiritual lamentation which is ecstatic. Yeah, it's explained by Mahaprabhu that this love and separation is a higher ecstasy than love in, in meeting. But the relationship is eternal. This basic relationship between the soul and Krishna is called the stai bhav. Bhav means among it means existence, and it means also emotion. And stai means something permanent, something that stays, something that can't be destroyed. My material aham, as I was saying, is is always changing. My sense of who I am, what I like, what I want to do, is always changing in this life and certainly from one life to another. And my sense of mine is always changing. Like I just got a new computer. So the computer I'm using right now, I think of as mine. But once we set up my new computer, then I'll give this computer to someone else, and it will no longer be mine. I'll have a different computer that I'll think is mine. And that's true even in our relationships. It's, not, it's only true with our things. Like people get married, they get divorced, or their spouse dies, or whatever. <laughs> you know, it, we don't hold on to these my, what to speak of from our past life. Like when Chitraketu's son came back into his body by the grace of Narada, and the, 
Narada says to him, just see, your parents are lamenting for you. And the child looks around and he says, my parents? In what life were these my mother and father? So that this kind of mind, my eye and mind, is very temporary. But Krishna is always mine. Krishna is always mine. Prabhupada one time told one of his lady disciples whose husband had died, he said, you should just have Krishna as your husband. He said, then you will never be separated by death or divorce or anything. So that's what we want to do. And that's what we want to cultivate. At least every day, like Rupa Goswami says, always remember Krishna and never forget him. And Vishnu Chakravati Thakur says that the neophyte cannot do this. You know, the neophyte cannot do this. So at least every day, so at least every day to have some time during the day when I am a soul and Krishna is mine. When we put aside even the service that we're, even things we're doing in service with our family, with our friends, with our, you know, this and that, to really just put that aside. That's the idea of our minimum 16 rounds, of our Gayatri, of our reading the scriptures, of our worshiping the deity. But at least during that time, that we put aside even the yukta vairagya, that we put aside even I'm raising these children in Krishna's service or I'm using this house in Krishna's service. It's my house that I'm using in Krishna's service. It's my spouse that I'm engaging in Krishna's service. That we put that aside and just just me and Krishna and in what is my real self and what is my real relationship with Krishna. And then we have a good hope. We really have a good hope. You know, the Vedic standard is that before death, if possible, I mean, there can be an untimely death, an unanticipated death. But the idea was that before death, the person physically leaves, not like here, Purunjana is surrounded by his family. But we'll see when Purunjana takes birth as a woman, that in the next life, as a woman, it's interesting, as a man he didn't do so well, but as a woman, (laughs) he becomes a pure devotee, and there... with the, the king Malayadwaja, Madhavakshin and Malayadwaja, then they do retire to the forest as Manaprastas, and even they practically stop their relation with each other. That Madhavakshin is simply serving Malayadwaja as a menial servant in the forest. And there, of course, she meets in the form of a Brahmana, the Supreme Lord, who brings her to her ultimate goal of life. So this this was the idea that at some point in life, one even separate oneself from these responsibilities so and these associations so that it's more likely that at the time of death one will not be thinking, you know, oh, my family, oh, you know, <laughs> um, uh, that one will be thinking, I am a soul and Krishna is mine. I am a soul and Krishna is mine. And then we don't have to come back for our various desires. Because our only desire will be the spiritual. And then Krishna's fulfilling all desires. The desire that we will get fulfilled is to take up again our position as Krishna's servant. Uh Yes. All right. Questions, comments, additions, subtractions? Question. Yes. You've been talking. We heard about this concept that I, mind, I am mine, and that's clear that we need to give up this identity, false identity that I am this body and this family is mine. What about the relationship with the spiritual master? There is the example of Murari Gupta. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was preaching to him and he never wanted to, he could not give up his worship of the Lord who was Lord Ramachandra, so how can we understand this? Is uh, What do we give up and what we shall never give up? Well, what we shouldn't give up is the, the Lord. <laughs> so that's your good example. <laughs> uh, we never want to give up the Lord, my Lord. 
However we see the Lord, whether we want to see the Lord as Krishna or Ramachandra, it's our particular relationship in an advanced stage of Krishna consciousness. And we don't want to give up the concept of the devotees, but the devotees, not in a... You know, when Kunti talks about Sneha Pasu, that she wants to break this tie of affection, even to the devotees, even to her family members, she wants to break a tie of affection to them as her family. And Prabhupada says, they're seeing in the dark is not seeing. That you have to see in the light. That we have a relationship of soul to soul via the super soul. But then they're not mine anymore. So I have a relationship with devotees, but they're not mine. And they're not my relationships because of the body. They're relationships in terms of service. Is that clear? What about the spiritual master? What about the spiritual master? They're also a devotee, I hope. Yes. <laughs> I heard sometimes I heard that this, the relationship with the spiritual master is never is eternal, and sometimes I heard that it is not. Well, it's interesting. You know, Prabhupada says the spiritual master is not an ordinary man. The spiritual master is a principle. The spiritual master is a truth. That the spiritual master is really Balaram or Lord Nityananda. And then there's particular jivas who take that role of representing them. Now, anyone who brings us to spiritual life, there's going to be some eternal dealings with them, but it may not be in the same form. We find Bilva Mangala Thakur, that his guru from his previous life spoke through Chintamani, his girlfriend, in order to guide him. So it wasn't necessarily that the same, same jiva appeared uh, guru may come in many different, uh, through many different jivas, may take that role. But certainly, if there's some jiva that has helped us in spiritual life, then in the spiritual world, there is some relationship with them. It may be a different kind of relationship, but there's certainly some relationship of eternal gratitude. Yes. Thank you. I think this is really interesting. Malati Manjuri wrote that she worked in hospice and that many people, instead of lamenting for the relatives they were leaving behind, were calling out for their mother. <laughs> uh, so that, that's kind of interesting, you know, kind of going back to, to childhood and feeling, Mommy, Mommy, save me, you know. And it's, it's interesting. Yes, Yes, Maka, I worked in, in many hospices in New Zealand, in Malaysia, and many of the hospices in, uh, in, in America, and I noticed that they called out for their mother. I mean, they're very attached to their wife, who's sitting there, but then they're only talking and speaking about their mother. So that's why I was thinking maybe they, are, they felt safest when they were growing up, and probably mm. they were so afraid now when they are dying. So, and I'm, I was thinking that, and when I became a, a devotee, I was thinking how nice it will be if they can call out for Krishna and feel safe. So, when I had the opportunity, I was able to chant, and because it was all Christian organizations, so they would let me do that. So, I read the Bible to them. Yeah. Oh, very nice. Very nice. And too bad that, you know, we don't realize Krishna is the supreme father and mother. <laughs> You know, we think our mundane mother, who probably by that time was already dead, and to yeah. call for her, rather than yeah. to say, Krishna is the Supreme Father, Krishna is the Supreme Mother. Yeah, yeah. That, that yeah. tendency to call for the parent, you know. Yeah, Mata, can you please uh, tell me, if I had a situation like that again, uh, how would I bring up that subject to say that to them? Because sometimes when they're in that situation, they don't want to hear anything else. So how could I gently say that to them, Mata? Uh, well, you could say, it's so nice you're calling for your mother, but the Lord is the supreme parent. You know, if you, if you want to have the protection of a loving parent, then call for the Lord. The Lord can take care of you in a way far beyond millions of mothers and millions of fathers. Thank you. You mentioned that uh, King Karanjan in the next life as a woman would attain, you know, become a pure devotee. 
Yes. But, uh, but you know, reading ahead in the verses, and it's her attachment to her husband who attained some sort of perfection that got her. That you know, so she's serving as usual her husband until he leaves his body. And that he happens to be a pure devotee. I mean, it's not just that she's serving a husband, husband, but that she is able, due to one would assume the pious activities performed in the life of Parunjana is able to have this and gotten this pure devotee spouse, yes. But how does Kunti give up her family affection without giving up her affection for the devotees? Well, she doesn't. She What she's asking for, of course she's asking for this because she's bewildered that if Krishna stays with her sons, he's not with her paternal family. And if he's with her paternal family, he's not with her sons. And that's why she's asking this. Because she's just like, I don't know where I want you to be. I don't know whether I want you to be in, in Indraprastha, in Hastinapur, or whether I want you to be in, in Dwarka. Because if you're in Dwarka, you're with part of my family. And if you're in Hastinapur, you're with another part of my family. So let me not be attached to any part of my family. <laughs> let me just be attached to you. <laughs> because it was too bewildering for her. And so she wanted, and Prabhupada explains that the point is to be attached to the family as devotees and not as family. Just like Lord Chaitanya Ramananda Roy, they're saying, Ramananda Roy says, the greatest sorrow is to be separated from the devotees. But the attachment to be to the devotional connection, not to the material connection, and thinking of family as a material shelter. Generally, we think of family as a material shelter. Hare Krishna Mataji, thank you for your class. But uh, my question is, is, isn't there a danger to think like that? Isn't there a danger to, to just... Uh, you know, to become so detached from your family, your husband and your wife, that uh, if you are not actually situated in Krishna consciousness, then you can go the other way. I mean, we can see so many sannyasins that eventually got married again, or so many gurus that they give up their... Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, this is... Uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur in um, Bhaktiloka... Is he's writing a commentary on Rupa Goswami's verses in Upadesh Amrita of the six things that are favorable and the six things that are unfavorable. And when he writes about Niyamagraha, he says there's different rules at different stages. And as you progress through the stages, the rules change. And you can make you can fall down if you um, if you don't take up the rules of the next stage or if you don't let go of the rules of the previous stage. So it's a fact that people who are very materialistic, it's far better to be attached to family members than to be detached because in their detachment they'll just be in Tamagun. And we see this at the modern age. We see that, you know people like the, the counterculture or the hippies, they were very detached from family life and very detached from responsibility and they were just in Tamagun. You know, just having lots of illicit sex and taking lots of intoxication without any responsibility. So it's far, far, far better to be in Rajagun where at least you're pious than it is to be in Tamagun where you're irresponsible. But Rajagun is not going to get you liberated. If you're really, really in Rajagun, then you can take birth, as Prabhupada says, as a richer, powerful human. And most religions are just teaching Rajagun. Now, higher than Rajagun is Sattvagun. In Sattvagun, you see everyone as a soul. You still have a sense of responsibility, but not because you think you're a great person. You have a sense of responsibility just for, for being in harmony and being in sync with the universe and doing what's right, not again in terms of like, I want to be a good person, uh, 
so that other people will think I'm a good person. But in terms of I want to feel myself internally that I'm connected. So if you can bring people to Suffragoon, that's even better. Where people take responsibility without so much of a sense of being a doer, with more of a sense of just fitting into harmony. But even better than that is you take up Bhakti, where you're very responsible, but in service. And therefore, Rupa says that to be too attached or too detached is actually a problem with those who take up bhakti. But one should take up one's responsibility in service. Without any personal attachment at all. That if Krishna says, okay, I have a new service for you, then, okay, you have a new service for me. You know? But someone taking up care of the family in service is going to be much, much more responsible than someone taking care of her family in Rajagun. Because in Rajagun, as soon as you don't get praise, or as soon as somebody doesn't treat you right, or as soon as something doesn't go your way, then you don't want to be responsible anymore. The determination in Rajagun is only when it looks like you're going to get a good result. Determination in Tamagun is just kind of, maybe I'll do it tomorrow, and I'll do it if it's easy. In Rajagun is, I'll do it if it's hard, but only if it looks like I'm going to get a result. In Satvagun, one is, I'm, I'm always going to do it because it's, it's the way to be. It is. It is the thing to be. It's what is right. And in Bhakti, it's, I'm going to do it because that way Krishna's going to smile. But now if Krishna's going to smile about something else, I'll do something else. So yeah, you don't want to artificially just knock somebody out of Rajagun because they might just plop into Tamagun. So, you know, it's not a very good idea to go to materialistic people and say, hey, you know, this family life is all rubbish and all your responsibility is all illusion. They'll go, oh, great, you know. <laughs> Let me go have 20 girlfriends and get drunk all the time. It, it's, that's not going to work. So you want, one wants to be very careful about that. Very good point. All right. Thank you very much. She will talk about Kijai. She might buy the time. Kijai. Jai. Jai.